Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Stuttering Foundation podcast. This is your host, Sarah McIntyre, recording from Philadelphia, and I am really excited to welcome today's guests. It's actually the first time we're meeting today and and chatting, and I and I think that's really special. I came across their uh, uh, article or their study in perspectives, and I thought, wow, I can't wait to chat with both of you more. So I'm welcoming Gabrielle Cozart and Laura Wilson today. Hey, hey, Gabby and Laura. Hello. Thanks for having us. Thank you for being here. So your study, and uh, I believe this was your study, Gabby, and your, uh, your professor, Laura Wilson, helped you along the way. It is called Strategies for Teachers to Support Children Who Stutter, Perspectives of Speech-Language Pathologists. I will toss it to you to kind of give us an overview, but first to read your bio so that listeners can learn a bit more about you. And and so here we go. Gabby Cozart is a pediatric speech language pathologist in Arkansas. She has worked in school-based and pediatric outpatient therapy settings, and her interests include stuttering, executive functioning, and literacy. Excited to have you, Gabby. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Laura Wilson is an associate professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at the University of Tulsa. She she teaches a graduate course in stuttering, has established a local chapter of a support group for children who stutter, and is a co-founder of OAKS. O-A-K-S, the Oklahoma Affiliates for the Knowledge of Stuttering, which is a special interest group for professionals in the state who work with people who stutter. She enjoys learning with and from people who stutter and has been fortunate to work with fantastic colleagues and students in speech-language pathology who are interested in stuttering. Welcome, Dr. Wilson. Thank you. I'm going to ask just a little bit about anything else you would want us to know about you or and or could you explain like what led you to stuttering? Because I think that's always an interesting, sometimes direct, sometimes not direct path for for many. So before I became a speech therapist, I worked a summer at Camp Say, which is an annual summer camp put on by the Stuttering Association for the Young. And that was an amazing experience because it's really unique to get to be in a room with dozens and dozens of people who stutter of all ages. So it was really cool for me to hear about individual experiences with stuttering and different attitudes about stuttering and different feelings about speech therapy. So that really got me interested before I became a speech therapist. And then later, while in graduate school, I participated in a graduate student training called Camp Shoutout. That was really important for shaping my clinical skills because I got to learn, you know, research for treatment approaches and actually work with a group of kids and have guidance by these experts. It was really, really awesome. And so that's why I knew I wanted to research stuttering with Laura. Gabby, you did Camp Say before I ever met you. You did it when you were an undergrad. What I don't think I've ever asked you, what led you to do that? Like, you know, that's, was it just kind of an opportunity that popped up? So you went for it? Was it something you sought out because you already knew you were interested in studying? Well, I came across it on the internet, but one of my undergraduate professors, he has a PhD in stuttering and he was really passionate about it. Um, And he did a summer program so that I got to observe in undergrad. So I think it was really, 
you know, from his teaching that I was like, just kind of looking for something to do over the summer. And then when I came across it, I was like, well, I'll apply and just see what happens. And it was, yeah. Yeah. So just through, through my professor. Yeah. My uh, entrance into this stuttering world is, is indirect, I would say, you know, that that does happen sometimes. Um, There are not a lot of stuttering specialists in our field. So many of us who teach stuttering courses, that's actually kind of our secondary area. And that's, that's true for me. So my first area of specialties and traumatic brain injury and concussion. And so that is what I focused a lot of my PhD on. And then when I was hired as a faculty member, there was a need for someone to teach the stuttering course. And I had about a about a nine month heads up. And so knowing that I wanted to kind of do that course justice and my students justice and the future, the future clients that they served as well. Um, and knowing that Historically and to this day, stuttering is an area of uh, the speech language pathology field that clinicians tend to feel least prepared in. I decided that I just needed to dive in. I was fortunate to be surrounded by some friends and colleagues who were stuttering experts that I could speak to. I went to like every continuing education opportunity I could find, um, observed support groups, just kind of really decided that I, I needed to dive in. Um, I was fortunate the Stuttering Foundation of America offered a week-long training that was just felt so perfect for me because it was for people who taught stuttering courses but were not stuttering specialists. And so I was able to go and spend a week with Lisa Scott and Vivian Siskin and Patricia Zabrowski and just some, some, you know, really incredible people in the stuttering field to help kind of guide the way that I thought about teaching the course and thought about approaching assessment and treatment of stuttering from a more holistic perspective than I think that I had had done before. So was able to do that. And then again, just kind of these as I continued to try and like read and learn and understand just different opportunities arose and made some connections and was able to, you know, I've now been able to go to a national meeting for people who stutter, again, like work with colleagues here in the state for support groups and had a stuttering camp at the University of Tulsa and, and, you know, just kind of build those opportunities. And so the more that I've learned and grown in this area of our field, the more like interest that, and kind of passion for it that I've, I've found as well. So not a direct route, but definitely happy to, to have landed here. And thus was just really excited when, when Gabby approached me about kind of wanting to pursue this, this subject as well. Well, I love that stuttering has this power to really pull people in. And I think it speaks to a lot of our, our drive to enter the profession. I think many of us want to help. And I think because of so many of the misunderstandings, so much of what we do with people who stutter is help support them in ways that, that really aren't just the physical aspects. In fact, I think we're doing it wrong if that's all we're thinking about because of how much stuttering can impact someone in terms of what they do or don't do, how they think and feel. So when I came across your article and you know, we receive at the Stuttering Foundation some inquiries from teachers, um, which I really think is amazing that a classroom teacher who is so busy and has so many different needs in their classroom decides that they want to learn more and reach out. And when I read your article, I thought, wow, this is so needed. And I, I'm just really honored and excited to have you both here to be able to, to talk and share a little bit more about, about the study. I'm going to pass it over to both of you. Could you give us just a 
very general overview of what it is that we're going to be talking about today and maybe what motivated you or drove you to to look into this topic a little further? So Gabby first approached me about doing this study because uh, Gabby, as she'll talk about today, I'm sure, has had a longstanding interest in working with people who stutter. And we chatted for a while about some of the the needs and what was kind of missing in the literature and what we were hearing clinically as well. And really what we were hearing from people in our local community that is backed up by research as well is that teachers often, although they want to be supportive, don't always know the best way to do that. And they feel sometimes like they haven't had a lot of education about how to support these kids who stutter. We know that stuttering is a relatively low incidence disorder. And so it may be, you know, only once every few years that a teacher has a person who stutters in their classroom. So they don't get a lot of practice sometimes with these interactions as well. Uh, And so we wanted to take a look at how speech language pathologists are suggesting, recommending, and supporting teachers as they then support those kids in the classroom. So we wanted to take a look at that. As speech language pathologists, it can be really helpful to know what other folks in our profession are doing, what kind of the norm is in terms of how we are making these recommendations for teachers in the school. I think it is incredibly important that we listen to the voices of people who stutter. And so in in fact, in this study, uh, Gabby modified a tool that was used to get information directly from people who stutter. And that allowed us to then say, okay, we know what people who stutter want to happen. Is that kind of consistent with what speech language pathologists are recommending to teachers um, that they do in the classroom as well? Yeah, so research shows that teachers desire knowledge about stuttering and desire to support kids who stutter in the classroom, but some teachers may feel, you know, helpless or uninformed. And yes, like Dr. Wilson said, you know, it's really important for speech therapists in the schools to collaborate with teachers, uh, you know, maybe hold in services or have conversations about the individual student's needs. So initially we were thinking like, okay, what would they recommend? And if you search the internet, you can find tips for teachers or, you know, like the do's and don'ts of interacting with people who stutter. And it's really, really important to get the perspectives of people who stutter, of adults who stutter and children who stutter. So yes, we adapted the past, the personal appraisal of support for stuttering um, with the mindset of, okay, how helpful would speech therapists think this support is? I think one of the things that Gabby did that was important is she not only adapted the pass to be appropriate for this population for us to survey speech paths about what teachers should do, but also um, she went online and essentially Googled as if she were a teacher, um, what can I do to help a kid who stutters or support a kid who stutters in my classroom to see what information would be readily available to teachers and then created some additional questions based on those like Gabby said, the do's and don'ts that teachers are going to be confronted with, whether those are evidence-based do's and don'ts or not. Yeah. Yeah. When you just do a general search, there are some from like published resources, some from anonymous resources. And I kind of get it because I feel like it's so individualized. It's hard to get empirical data and it might be different from child to child. But it was interesting because in my search, I saw, oh, well, this author said this, and then a different author said something that was a little bit conflicting. So I wanted to kind of include those in the survey to see what speech pathologists would think. 
And I'm sure that this is probably something that came to mind too, but just the general societal trend to have a, a stereotyped look at stuttering and have a lot of misconceptions or myths surrounding stuttering just out there. And so not even just within our profession, but I imagine that some of what you 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 came upon and what teachers might come upon were related to just some of those general misconceptions too. And I think that that was so important that you looked just widely what they might come across. Yes, yes. And some were even, you know, dated 20, 30 years ago. And so it's interesting to see, okay, well, this was published in, you know, the 1990s and recommended this communication strategy, but more recent publications don't really mention that. And so just kind of how things change over time. One of the things that research has showed us is that teachers are not protected against or different in some of the attitudes and kind of stigma that they hold about stuttering. And so because of that, this felt really important because as we all know, teachers have a profound ability to impact the lives of all of the kids in their classroom. And so if we know that some folks hold these incorrect beliefs, assumptions, um, sometimes negative attitudes, that, that really does have the potential to impact the life of a child who stutters in their classroom. So this is an area that, in my opinion, in our field of speech language pathology, this is just a critical role that we play is providing some education and Honestly, we're still working on that in the field of speech-language pathology. There's a, a study recently that looked at speech-language pathology preparation and asking speech-language pathologists what they felt most prepared to do in terms of supporting kids who stutter. And teacher education was not high on that list. So it's something that, that we continue need to continue to push for speech-language pathologists so that we can support those teachers who are really on the front lines with you know those day-to-day interactions with the children in their classrooms. As a total side note, I just returned from the Friends a- a- annual convention, and I spent a lot of time with the tweens. Um, in fact, by the last day, I walked into the room and one of them said, oh, you again? <laughs> and we totally laughed about that. Um, classic but, Yeah, classic queen. But we had some really wonderful, open, and honest conversations about what is tricky for tweens, or, or this particular group of tweens, and what what came to mind in situations that they wish that they had spoken up for themselves in or situations where someone really misunderstood stuttering. And I want to say at least half of the children had an experience in the classroom where it was likely, of course, not coming from a place of malice or any sort of malintention there. But, you know, the children reported that classroom teachers weren't always aware that they were in a moment of stuttering and they were just needing a little more time to answer a question, but then they were moved on from and another student was called on or similar situations like that. And so coming into this this conversation today, I was just so inspired by what they shared this weekend. It's amazing. I was kind of, when when I did work in a school, I had I had an experience where a teacher was laughing at a young, like a young kid stuttering. Cause I read that the research shows that most teachers can like recognize the signs of stuttering, like know what stuttering is, but might not know how to support that child in the classroom. But I was still, I was still really like kind of shocked to hear that that was happening. And I don't know why it shocked me, you know, cause I just, I do see so many teachers who, 
because they, you know, they have a, a whole classroom of kids with different needs and they just go out of their way to support them. But stuttering, I guess, because it's so low incidence, I think it it's still something that teachers may not experience that often. So, yeah. Okay, so before we get to the nuts and bolts of the study, could we talk through a bit about the potential consequences of stuttering for school-age children? So as children get into the school-age years, they may develop some awareness of their stuttering. Um, they may be able to detect how other people are reacting to their stuttering. And every single child is unique and different um, and has a different experience with their stuttering. But research has shown that it might affect their participation in life. So, you know, maybe academically, you know, are you going to ask a question that you have? Are you going to be likely to raise your hand and answer questions? It could also have social consequences. You know, there's been lots of studies that show children who stutter are more vulnerable to bullying. So while it probably looks different for every single child, there are potential consequences that stuttering could affect the child academically, emotionally, and socially. One of the things that we see is that some kids who stutter develop a belief or a lack of communicative competence. So they don't believe that they are good communicators. And that belief that they're not a good communicator is actually a pretty big predictor of other outcomes. So if you have two people who stutter and one believes that they have good communicative competence and one does not, the one who does not feel that they are communicatively competent is less likely to participate, more likely to socially withdraw, that kind of thing. So it's, it's kind of this this mediator between the stutter itself and the, the impact that, that that stutter has. So that school age time is really important because as Gabby said, they may be more vulnerable to bullying. They may have, because of that lack of communicative competence, less likelihood of participating, not only in those like classroom experiences, but in the extracurriculars as well, which is all part of that educational experience. And the psychosocial outcomes are, are really important, right? There's more potential risk for uh, like social anxiety disorders and, and that kind of thing too. So this is a really critical time for thinking about how we can support children who stutter in being good communicators, regardless of their fluency levels. And I think depending on the messaging that they had received so far, whether it was implicitly or or explicitly indirect, that how they talk is not okay or okay, depending. And depending on maybe if they've had some type of therapy or, or not, but that the message was sent that it's better that when you talk it, that it's fluent, then a lot of times children who stutter will choose to then not talk, or they'll have less confidence in their overall communicative competence because they will potentially choose to to participate or not just based on whether they're going to stutter or not, which then leads, I think, to a more more, more cycle of of mi mi misinformation about what messaging is helpful and, and, and what's not so helpful for them and supporting that confidence and participation and, and allowing their voices to be heard and celebrated. It's a really important thing that we work on in our field is, you know, as we're sort of kind of helping to build that next generation of clinicians is, like you said, that that kind of accidental even messaging sometimes that fluent is better. You know, 
I talk with our graduate students just to kind of be careful of that language. You know, when you finish a, a therapy session, hey, you had a really good day today. Your words came out really smooth. Well, that is then saying that like fluency is good and stuttering is not good versus like, wow, I really liked how you were willing to try that new strategy. You were really brave in going up and having that conversation. You know, we can we can think about ways to be supportive without sort of making this connection between fluency, good, stuttering, bad. And I I think that as therapists, we have to continually be really intentional uh, about that messaging because, you know, kids pick up on that. The other impact is there's been some research that looks at the impact on families as well. Um, And in this school age time, having a child who stutters can lead to more um, kind of stress within the family as well as parents are trying to help navigate how things go for their child who may have different challenges at school. The parents may not have a lot of information about how best to support them as well. So there can be some some family stress as a as an impact in the school age years as well. You know, speaking a bit to to the role of the classroom teacher in supporting children who stutter, I, I guess could you both speak to just a, an overview of that role and and that potential impact? Mm-hmm. Teachers can have an important role because they are with the child most of the day, whereas speech therapists may only see that child, you know, for 30 minutes once a week in the schools. So they really can see how that child is participating in class, how they're participating with peers. And so they can have conversations with the speech therapist and, you know, share insights and work together. We'll get into, as we talk about the results of this study, you know, there there might be certain sp- supports that teachers can do, but really how they, you know, view stuttering. If teachers are knowledgeable about stuttering, they can know how to support that that child in the classroom. I think we'll get to it, like Abby said, in a little bit more details. But if we think about kind of the big chunks of the big categories of things that teachers can do in the classroom. We know that they can have those personal one-on-one interactions where they express support, acknowledgement, validation of the child. So those one-on-one interactions, they can also serve as an extender to some degree if the child is in speech therapy. In speech therapy, one of the things that we do a lot of is build up these sort of like hierarchy of activities, right? So if you are going to practice stuttering openly, for example, if that's your goal, or if you are going to practice the use of a new strategy, or if you are going to practice self-disclosure where you identify that you're a person who stutters when you start a conversation, whatever it is that you're working on, one of the things we do in speech therapy is sort of like build your way up a, a hierarchy so you have the kid identify like what would the easiest place or the easiest person to do that with? Like where you can have a a good win, right? Where you can practice that thing, whatever is you're working on in a safe, successful environment. And then what would the next step up from that look like? And you kind of, you build that up. And so the classroom can be one of those steps along the hierarchy, in which case a teacher can really support that really well. So they can be kind of an extender of, of sorts. And I think what, you know, what we found in this study is that at the appropriate time, right? They don't need to be sort of like telling them to use their strategies all the time, but at appropriate times, they can be that extender. And then they also can help support the social environment, right? So reducing bullying and teasing, helping the child identify different extracurricular activities, you know, that kind of thing. So there's there's lots of different roles that the teacher can play. And like Gabby said, it is 
it's a huge responsibility because they are the ones that have the FaceTime with that child and, and can do that in a way that other therapists can't do, other professionals can't do, just because we, we don't have that same FaceTime. So they, uh, teachers have just a really critical role in and and I, you know I think there's some qualitative work that supports that that that's that people like you know like you said in your example your tweens will can can point to like this was a time where that went badly in the classroom and sometimes thankfully this is a time like that was handled really well in the classroom but but people who stutter can can point to those stories like those are those are big moments in their lives that can have a that can you know can have a, a really important effect on how they view themselves as a person who stutters as a communicator that kind of thing could you both walk us through the d- 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 design and results of the study i'll kind of hand it off to you to 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 talk us through an overview there so we surveyed 122 speech therapists in the state of Oklahoma we adapted a survey called the PASS, the Personal Appraisal of Supports for Stuttering. And this survey asks people who stutter, like, what are the do's and don'ts of interacting with people who stutter? But we adapted it to where we're asking speech therapists, how helpful would it be if a teacher used this support in the classroom? We took the survey and so they, they read the support. So how helpful would it be if a teacher finish the child's words. And they rated it on a scale of one to five with one being unhelpful and five being helpful. And so with the results, we kind of grouped, there were lots of supports. There were like 41 different supports. So we grouped them into categories to help discuss them and analyze them. One of the categories was communication strategies. So are there things teachers can do about the way they communicate to support children who stutter. Some of the ones that were rated helpful by the speech therapists were to be patient when the child's talking, maintain normal eye contact with the child while they talk, whereas some of the ones that were deemed unhelpful be, you know, interrupting, finishing the child's words, using a fast rate of speech when speaking to the child. And then there were some that had, I think it'd be interesting to talk about the ones where there was some variability or for me, I think one of the interesting ones was asking the child to repeat himself or herself if their message is not understood, because that's something that actually happens all the time with me, not just with kids who stutter, but just anytime I, I don't understand a kid, I want to understand their message. And sometimes when you ask a child to repeat themselves multiple times and you still don't know, you know, you want to show them, I care about what you're saying. I, I really want you to get your your message across. Generally, the speech therapists found it like helpful or were neutral. Um, but I thought that was an interesting one. Like I would like to be able to go like ask individual kids like, okay, do you like it if I say, well, will you say that again? Or what was that? Yeah, I think that's a good point. There were some that are just sort of universally believed to be helpful, mm-hmm. right? You are patient, you maintain eye contact, you know, you don't interrupt those kinds of things. But I think the ones of variability that really speaks to the need for teachers to work with students individually. So do we need a student's message to be understood? 
Absolutely. We don't want to pretend to understand a child when we do not. We do not want to just move on if we don't understand. So the nuance there, I think, is how is what is the best way for that particular child? So if, for example, a child says something and stutters to the degree that the message is not understood, then that child and teacher ideally will talk about ahead of time how to handle that situation. So if you are really having trouble getting some words out and I'm not understanding you, do you want me to just say, can you say that again? Or do you want me to move on, but then make sure I meet with you individually at the end of class. Like, you know, like what are the, what are the different ways? And obviously the, the feasibility of each of those depends on the content and the size of the class and that kind of thing. But that can be a negotiation because it's not going to be the same for, for one child. They may be like, no, you like, I need to sit here with this and keep trying until you get it. Don't move on with the discussion. Like my point matters right now. Another child may feel like, okay, I would rather not be the center of attention about this for the next four minutes while we try while we try and negotiate it, but I still want to be able to tell you. So the end of class may be better. And then those are just two options. There are many other ways you could handle it. But navigating that for each child can be can be really important. So I think that's some of the, the variability that we find is that like there are general things we know or that speech paths at least believe would be really helpful for teachers to do. But some of the nuance is about exactly how to kind of negotiate that situation with each individual child based on their temperament and, you know, personality and sensitivity and and, and that kind of thing too. Yes. Um, yes. I think it's interesting, like as we'll continue going through these different categories, that's what I kept coming back to. Like, well, some of them seem universally do or don't, but some of them, it just shows you why it's important to have that one-on-one conversation with the child. And so, and then it also kind of reminded me of when I was doing my internet search, you know, sometimes a support would be phrased as like, yes, you should do this. And then kind of as we're discussing our results, it's made me think, well, should you always do it? And so it just kind of it reminds you again and again, each child's unique and you need to have those, I think, those one-on-one conversations. The other thing that stood out about this particular section, these communication strategies to me, is that some of them teachers are going to come across when they search. But some of these strategies are really geared toward um, what we know from younger, like preschool children. So one example of that in this particular category is using simple language when speaking to a child. So there has been some research in the preschool setting. So with young children who are stuttering, uh, when we're doing these kind of indirect therapy approaches where parents are having dedicated time where they're following the child's communication lead and trying to modify that communication environment to support the child's fluency when they're young, that using simple language, whether that's simple syntax, kind of uh, lower dollar vocabulary sometimes can support fluency. Now, you don't want to do that all the time because we also need kids who stutter to learn big vocabulary words, but but there are these kind of pockets of time where that can support fluency. And so we see those recommendations extend out into the school age realm when really there's no evidence base for that. There's no evidence that if you're talking to a fifth grader who stutters, that you should use simpler vocabulary in your interactions with him or her. But those things, because they're sort of like overly generalized from the preschool population, you do still see those kinds of recommendations pop up on some of those do's and don'ts lists that teachers will find online. Mm -hmm. And some of those lists may not clearly state. So if I were a teacher and I googled, how can I support a child who stutters? 
it might not clearly state preschool child or school age. So I think that's um, one thing as we're trying to get more information out there to make it clear the age group that you're talking about. The other one specifically in this um, section of communication strategies that comes up for me is the use of the term stutter when commenting about the child and his or her speech. And so, you know, in our field for a long time, really from about the time when I was in school, like that was when the the person first movement was being pushed really hard, right? You should not say stutter, you should say person who stutters, you should not say autistic person, you should say person with autism. And that was pushed really hard. But in those two particular communities, there's been a, a pushback a little bit in the other direction of this identity first language where, um, you know, there's the argument that like, being a, a person who's stuttering, having autism, like is part of one's identity. So you don't need to make that separation. So how do you know then? Do I say stutterer or person who stutters when I'm talking to someone who stutters? And the answer there, I think, is just to follow the lead of that person. So if they call themselves a stutterer, then 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 follow that language. I think that in our study, resoundingly, SpeechPath said, don't do that. And so I think when I'm thinking about that, you have to consider context. I think you don't want to say, oh, in the same way that I wouldn't call out uh, you know, that, uh, that stutterer over there, you know, I may not like use that as a way to point, I would say, you know, the boy in the blue shirt over there. <laughs> Instead, you know, you want to be kind of be careful about that language. But in terms of those individual conversations, that person first versus identity first language, that's, that's a, a follow the lead of the family of the child kind of thing. I think. The next category is the teacher's role in speech therapy. Some of the supports that were rated unhelpful were tell the child how they should feel about stuttering, tell the child to slow down. I feel like that's one you hear universally, you know. Some that were rated helpful were to collaborate with the child's SLP and use cues to practice therapy strategies in the classroom. I think that's an interesting one because, I don't know, I feel like you, a teacher, should probably make sure that that's what they should be doing. Like, if the speech therapist says, okay, this kid's ready to, like, this kid wants to practice this strategy in the classroom. But I thought that was interesting that most of the speech therapists rated using cues to practice therapy strategies in the classroom is helpful because, like, how Laura was talking about that hierarchy, maybe they, they're they practicing that in the speech therapy room, but maybe not yet in the classroom. So I thought that one was interesting. I think along those lines, in the same way that I think as a field, we're getting better at making sure that our therapy is not just focused on speech, but on the affective and cognitive kind of sides of things as well. So how can you be a good communicator, not just how can you not stutter, for example. So I think that when I think about this, if speech pathology as a field who studies this, if we are still kind of working to make sure everyone is getting on that same page, that like stuttering therapy cannot just be about percent disfluencies, for example, that if we're still kind of trying to make that push, then we're going to need to recognize that teachers are going to need some help in that area too. And so when I read this, the thing that, that kind of catches me, like we don't want teachers to just be 
reminding every kid that they need to be, oh, you you know, use your speech strategies because maybe that child is not actually working on any fluency shaping or stuttering modification strategies in therapy right now. Maybe all the work they're doing is around confidence with communication, is around self-disclosure, is around, you know, those kinds of things. Maybe they're not working on fluency shaping at all. And so it goes with that collaboration. Teachers can be absolutely extenders into the classroom, but they need to do it in an individualized kind of skilled way that requires that communication with a therapist or with a child. I say or with a child because not obviously not every child who stutters is going to be receiving therapy in school because not every child who stutters needs therapy in school. And so if the child is not getting therapy, if they're not kind of under the care at the, at the time of a speech pathologist, then it's going to be that kind of teacher-child-parent negotiation as to what kind of helps in the classroom regarding those, those cues as well. Um, so again, it just goes back to being really pretty highly individualized here. But that collaboration with the speech pathologist is, is going to be really critical. And this category actually had our two supports with the most variance. And one of those was to tell the child to think about what they want to say. That had the most variance in answers. So people really rated it all across the board on a scale of one to five. And then the other one was tell the child. And so this is for a teacher. So for a teacher to tell the child to think about what they want to say. And then the other one is for a teacher to tell the child what to do when they stutter. I thought that those are very kind of like vague supports because that could mean a lot of things. But I thought that it was interesting that those had a lot of variance. For me, like I would I would deem those as unhelpful. So I was surprised it didn't get more unhelpful. Yeah, it just had more variance than you would expect. I agree. The tell the child to think about what what he or she wants to say strikes me very similar to the tell the child to slow down, right? This is what like every kid kid hears all the time. Uh, when I not every kid, that's an exaggeration, but many kids who stutter hear a lot of the time is well, just slow down, just think about what you want to say in a way that is like that is not specific or helpful, right? That is that is not a direct strategy that is going to make a difference for, for many kids. And many kids, for example, you know, we talk about this a lot in my class, like telling a child to slow down, it is possible that slowing a child's rate of speech may improve their fluency. But saying the words to a child slow down doesn't somehow give them the skills to change the way in which they talk. It is hard. I am a fast talker by nature. And if someone just tells me to slow down, if I'm not super intentional about it, as a speech path who has a lot of training in this, I may slow down for about three seconds and then speed right back up. So these kind of generic, hey, this is what you should do. It's stuff that the kids have likely heard before and doesn't always make a big difference and can just be, from my clinical experience, really frustrating for the kids. So I agree with Gabby it surprised me the degree to which that was that was endorsed. That was one of the ones that that I was a little bit curious about because obviously then a you know a, a chunk of our speech pathologists thought that that could be a helpful thing for teachers to do. So that that's one that I think is is worth kind of leaning into and continuing to kind of think about and discuss as we're training new clinicians and and that kind of thing as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I I think any of those suggestions are not really heard by the child usually for what they are. They're actually, that that message to them is just digested as, okay, they want me to communicate without stuttering here, or, or, or it seems like that's preferred. And of course, we understand 
paradoxically with stuttering, the more a child is uncomfortable with stuttering or tries not to stutter, usually the more struggle there is or reactivity or resistance. And so it would make sense to me that we would want to, for lack of a better term, like disempower the classroom teacher to feel like the speech police, because in fact, mm-hmm. all lanes are probably going to be digested as from the child is, okay, what does this person want from me? And what are they seeing as sorting that good or bad there? For Even if we are, are really careful with our semantics, uh, unless we negotiate with the child in their individual case, of course. Yeah, because I mean, the, the message has got to be from the teacher that I care about what you say, not how you say it. It's got to be that. And so, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right that any of those other suggestions, comments, recommendations about speech, it's just a, a reminder to the child that the, the teacher is listening to, to how I'm talking, not, not the message of what I'm saying. So yeah, I absolutely agree. Two more that were generally endorsed as positive that I was pleased to see there is discuss the child's feelings about stuttering in private. So again, that the degree to which that needs to happen is going to vary for each child, but like having that conversation in private. So just the proactive nature of discussing um, how things should go in private is is really helpful. And then the ask the child how the teacher can help the child with the stuttering. So, you know, the child is an expert in their stuttering. And so asking the child how they want to be supported is really important. And some kids will have more insight than others, but just the fact that they are asked, just the fact that the teacher is expressing interest in their in their thoughts about it, even if they're young and don't have a lot of insight yet as to what would help them, the fact that they are being engaged as a partner in that discussion is really, really important. The next category is the teacher's role in social support. Out of all the categories, this is the one in which the supports mostly got helpful ratings. The most helpful was inviting the child to participate in extracurricular activities, implementing a teasing and bullying program for all of the students in the class, inviting the child to a support group for other children who stutter, introducing the child to someone else who stutters, tell the child their own story of stuttering, positively reinforce the child's abilities in front of classmates, and give the child information about stuttering. So looking through those, some of them at the top Some speech therapists said that maybe giving them information about stuttering like books or movies or websites might be unhelpful or trying to like reinforce their abilities in front of classmates might be be unhelpful. But generally in this area, um, the teachers all have social support. Speech therapists deem these types of supports as helpful. When we look at the evidence base for some of these strategies, so not just what speech paths think teachers should do, but what is the evidence behind them? Some of the evidence is a little bit weaker. And so it's almost sort of like this this intuitive feeling of what would be helpful. But we can also pull from other literature that is not specific to stuttering. So for example, there's not a lot about whether positively reinforcing a child who stutters abilities in front of classmates is specifically beneficial. But generally, positively reinforcing kids' abilities in front of their classmates is is helpful. And so for many of these, I think what they kind of say to me is just that we have this sense that we want to make sure that we are being supportive, that if any child is not engaging in extracurricular activities, we should probably reach out and see if we can support that. And that's going to be true for kids who stutter as well. For kids who stutter, like we talked about earlier, we know that 
they may be less likely to insert themselves into some of those positions of participating in a sport, in drama, in in whatever, if they don't have that sense of communicative competence. And so a teacher can play a really important role in in making the ask. And again, that's not unique to kids who stutter, but it is an important thing that a teacher can do. Similarly, a training and bullying program helps all kids, not just kids who stutter. But there has been some research to show that kids who stutter do appreciate when that happens. And so this can be a way to kind of make sure the classroom is a supportive environment. And then if it's going to take a slant toward focusing on stuttering specifically, that can include education of classmates about stuttering to kind of reduce the stigma that can come from lack of understanding of what stuttering is. And we know that there's really good clinical examples of getting kids who stutter involved in those trainings so that they get to do um, a presentation about what stuttering is. They get to show their expertise in that in that area. But again, this training and bullying program does not have to be stuttering specific. It can be about creating a classroom environment that is supportive of all students as well. Now, the ones that are specific, inviting the child to a support group for kids who stutter, introducing them to other people who stutter. Uh, this is why organizations like Friends, like Camp Say, like all of those are, are so important because giving a child who stutters the opportunity to meet other people who may have similar experiences, to be in an environment where the way that they communicate is normalized more than it is going to be in a classroom where they may be the only child who stutters. We know that that can have really profound effects on those psychosocial outcomes that we can see for these school-age school age children. So those are are really important. And a teacher can, can fill that role. Again, um, this is where collaborating with a speech pathologist can come in as well, because a speech pathologist may, just by nature of our training, have more information about what opportunities are available. They may be able to partner them with other people who stutter in the school that may not be in the same grade, for example, that could allow for a good mentorship opportunity that kind of thing as well. But this, you know, when I, we look at all of these that, that like Gabby said, they were generally all endor- endorsed. Really, it is about the teacher creating an environment in their classroom in which kids feel supported and involved and a part of the broader community. The next category of supports involves the teacher's attitudes and knowledge about stuttering. So supports that the SLPs deemed helpful were to know how to react when the child stutters, um, know about stuttering and what causes it. I personally agree with both of those as being helpful. You know, knowing about stuttering and what causes it allows for any of those like misconceptions, you know, misconceptions like, oh, you just don't know what you want to say or you're emotional. It, it allows you to understand stuttering. And then knowing how to react when the child stutters, I imagine that would be really difficult for a teacher who's, you know, never interacted with someone who stutters. And that is, it's interesting to me because everyone, almost all the participants rated knowing how to react when the child stutters as helpful. But then I kind of started asking myself, like, how do you react? Because I guess that could mean like a lot of different things. This is where I think it's important to kind of look historically. Um, Historically, there was this belief that talking about stuttering, naming stuttering, that kind of thing could make stuttering worse or even cause stuttering in the more kind of like historically extreme versions of that. And this still carries over. We still have parents who are like worried about using the word stuttering. We still have teachers then as well who are worried that they would be doing something wrong if they 
did anything other than pretend that the stuttering was not happening. But for school-age children, they know the stuttering is happening. This is not news to them. And so if no one around them is willing to talk about it, if the teachers aren't willing to acknowledge it, that can create the sense that like, oh, this is this is bad. This is shameful. This is a topic that cannot be broached. And so there's there's this this difference between, you know, many people said that ignoring the child stuttering is is not helpful because sometimes that would mean ignoring the child. Like we have to acknowledge that sometimes it is harder to get a point across. Sometimes it takes longer to get the words out and that's okay. We don't have to pretend like that's not true. We still can be patient and we still can be supportive, but we don't have to pretend like it's not happening. So there's this sort of balance between not overemphasizing, not asking someone to repeat every word that they stutter on, obviously, but also not pretending like it's a shameful topic that we can't, you know, we can't acknowledge. And so this is where those individual conversations between students and teachers, I think can be really valuable. That private discussion that shows the child that the teacher is comfortable talking about stuttering. The teacher is comfortable asking them for the child's expertise about the best way to respond, that this is not a topic that is off limits. And that it is not something that we have to sort of like push off into the shadows in a way that makes the child feel like if they're going to stutter, they shouldn't really talk. So I think that knowing how to react, the way to react is to be patient, is to have a conversation ahead of time to know like, hey, again, like if at some point we have to move on and the message is not done, like how how do we need to handle that within the classroom of, of 30 people? If, you know, if there's a, um, if the bell rings and people are ready to dismiss and you haven't gotten your point across, like how, how should we handle that as a student and a teacher in this classroom? So having those conversations, not speaking over the child, all of those things that we kind of know to be just respectful ways of communicating while not pretending like the stuttering is not happening. The other thing that stands out to me, you know, you mentioned Gabby, the the teacher that was that was laughing about a young child, a, 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 a like a young kiddo's stutter. But you know, making sure that the response is not one that expresses pity, for example. No one wants to be no one wants to be pitied. And so making sure that it's not like a, oh, I'm so sorry, honey. You know, like this sort of like patronizing response that sometimes, you know, I um I have lived in the South my whole life and you get sometimes this sort of like the you get honeyed a little bit um sometimes when 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 things occur. And so just thinking about how a teacher can have a bit of a no-nonsense approach to the conversation and then interactions. It's really important because the teacher is then modeling that, right? The teacher is the person in the room who the other students are going to see responding. The students are going to see the teacher either looking away nervously or just waiting patiently, either finishing that student's words or not, either pretending like they understood what they said when they didn't or not. Like the teacher is that model. So they are, you know, it's it's critical there. The good news is that there's research now that shows that it doesn't take a lot to change teacher knowledge and attitudes. A presentation about what stuttering is and some basic tips, you know, Stuttering Foundation has lots of resources, like eight tips for teachers, I think is is one that they have. And so it, it does not take much beyond a presentation to change some of those attitudes and help teachers feel empowered. Because again, we can't expect teachers to just automatically know how to respond when we know that they have the same kind of beliefs and attitudes about stuttering as the rest of the population. So without additional support, we can't expect anything else 
But the good news, again, is that a, you know, a brief presentation is not going to solve all the issues and is not enough for a teacher to know how to support every single child who stutters, but is enough to get teachers on the right path to feeling like they have some of the skills to know how to implement some of these universally appropriate supports for the kids in their classroom. Yeah, before we move on, I'll add that I also found it interesting that we got some speech therapists who found it helpful to ignore the child stuttering. And it kind of reminds me of like, I can see how that would be like damaging to just completely ignore it. I see on the one hand, you know, you want to show that you're comfortable with stuttering, like you don't want to just point it out. But you know, at the same time, that's a part of who that kid is like they are an eight year old boy like soccer and science and they stutter. And so, you know, just completely ignoring it is ignoring something that's shaping that that child's life, their experience. So this last category is classroom management strategies for teachers. And I feel like of all of the categories, this is the one where teachers have like a lot of control over. So this category is basically how should they manage their classrooms? Um, what can they what strategies can they use in the classrooms? Supports that were deemed unhelpful would be asking the child questions requiring a lot of verbal output, calling on the child to speak last, rewarding quick call-out answers in class. Some that were rated as helpful would be calling on a student in calling on the students in the class in a prearranged order and only calling on students when they volunteer information. This is one where I mean it just goes back to every child is different. Some children may love for there to be like no order that you that you call on them, right? So it's like going back to those one-on-one conversations and knowing that there could be variability from day to day. If they're having a day where they're stuttering more often or just not feeling like participating, maybe they could have like some sort of, you know, talk with the teacher and, and kind of let them know how they're how they're feeling that day. So it could like change day by day. One big focus of this section is on um, how to elicit participation from children who stutter. And if you look in the literature of studies who have talked to kids who stutter about this topic, the results are a little bit all over the place because it is so individualized. Some people will say that having any kind of order is kind of anxiety provoking because then you're just like counting down like consistently. So kind of not having that pressure is a little bit easier. Some people will say that it was best for them that they were able to kind of negotiate an arrangement with a teacher wherein they weren't ever called on, kind of cold called or spontaneously, but they had an agreement where they would raise their hands X number of times in a, per class so that they kind of had a little bit more control over when they participated. And, and you know, different people who stutter kind of endorse different ones of those strategies. I'd like to talk here in a couple of minutes about some of those things that you can do to be successful at the start of the year as you're kind of getting the school year started. So some things the teacher can do, some things the student can do. But I think having a conversation around that is really is really important. Another one that comes up, you know, we spoke earlier about how some of the recommendations kind of pull from literature about younger kids. There is one about pairing a child who stutters with a choral reader when reading aloud, which just means that two people would read the same words aloud at the same time. Which if, you know, having worked with kids who stuttered, being asked to read aloud in class often comes up as one of the like most anxiety provoking things about being in a classroom. And so we know that 
choral reading or reading aloud at the same time as someone else is a fluency inducing situation, meaning that if you are reading at the same time as someone else, you are less likely to stutter than if you're reading aloud without someone else reading at the same time. However, what we don't know from the evidence is if that translates to anything good with outcomes. Like, yes, that is true. But does that mean that that actually helps a child in the classroom? Does that mean that helps their oral reading skills? Does that mean that helps their confidence? Does that mean anything other, anything at all other than they will likely stutter less if someone else is reading at the same time? So, you know, we we have these sort of nuggets of information, but we don't always know what their, the impact of their application is. And this is a, this is a good example of that. Choral reading is likely to reduce disfluencies when reading aloud. Does that mean we should use it in the classroom? Eh, I don't know. Like, I don't think we really have information for that one way or the other. And then I think the other ones that Gabby mentioned that, that come up are more around sort of like how teachers structure their class. So is the class, if it's a history class, like, is it going to be large group discussion? If it's large group discussion, is that going to benefit? Like, is it relatively unstructured? So whoever raises their hand or speaks out the fastest is the one who gets to talk and there are participation points and that kind of thing. That can be problematic for a child who stutters. But I don't think the answer to that is like never engage in large group discussion, right? We don't want to um, limit the opportunities that our kids have. So thinking about if you're going to use large group discussion as a component of your class, again, how can you structure it? So there are a million different ways you can do it. But is there uh, one thing I've seen people do successfully is have a like a ball and whoever has the ball gets to talk. And so the class literally gets to throw, like you sit in a circle and you throw the ball around. Whoever has the ball is the one who gets to talk and then it gets thrown to someone else. And so that means there's less likely to be that sort of like jump in as fast as possible. You're less likely to get interrupted, you know, that kind of thing. So there are these these strategies that we can use where we don't say like, you're never going to get called on in class, for example. You're never going to participate in large group discussion because what we want to do is help the child be able to participate well without taking away all of those opportunities for engaging and learning skills that are in, that are important. You know, when you go out into the workforce, many jobs require you to be able to participate in large group discussions. So it can't just be that we say, whoop, like, no, as a teacher, I'm just not going to do that since that may be hard for, for the kid who stutters in my class. So it's, it's really thinking about how we can structure those interactions so that it is not the kid who just talks the fastest who is going to get to get to participate. And that's where those individual discussions between the speech pathologist and the, the teacher can be really helpful for the student to express their needs, the speech path to um, generate ideas to help meet those needs. And also sometimes sort of like help that as part of the therapeutic process, help push that along. I think about that a lot with, we didn't talk about in this study presentations, but classroom presentations come up a lot in these conversations about like how to, um, how to help and support a child who stutters. What I don't really like to see in general is an accommodation in which the child finishes school and has never had to do a presentation. You know, that's not that's not serving them well for their future, but doing it in a structured way where, and again, if we think about that hierarchy, you build up to that, you build up to that success. So maybe, you know, the first time you do a presentation, it is just with a teacher or it's recorded ahead of time. So you can do it a couple of times or it's just in front of two of your friends or however that that seems to help. And then you can work your way up through that. So thinking about how the teacher can be a partner with the speech pathologist, with the student 
to help have them meet those same educational learning objectives of oral communication that you're supposed to meet in school that our that our standards require us to meet in a way that is successful and achievable for for kids who stutter. I'm going to just add like yeah, I think with this category, you know, you got to be careful. You can't it's not like a one size fits all. Like you can't just give a teacher, "Oh, just use a prearranged order so they always know when they're going to answer." It's really just being aware. Being aware that you know, children who stutter might have this buildup of anxiety if they think they're going to get called on. Being aware of, okay, am I letting children interrupt other children? You know, was this kind of reminds me of what you were talking about earlier. Like, was that child trying to answer and then someone else interrupted or I called on someone else because I didn't, I wasn't aware that they were stuttering in that moment. So I like that it kind of just like sparks some like conversations and some things for teachers to think about. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that because some of these are are not conflicting, but just a little bit hard perhaps to to reconcile. And so I think that the important thing here is that teachers know that there are options and that these are, speech language pathologists believe, options that could help a child who stutters. That doesn't mean it will, that doesn't mean it applies to everyone, but it is just another kind of thing in their repertoire that they could potentially use to support that child. And then what strategies are best for that particular child is going to need to be investigated and, and discussed and negotiated uh, with the child, with the parents, with the other teachers, with the speech language pathologist, if there's a speech language pathologist involved as well. The other thing that I think this gets to from my perspective as a speech language pathologist is that not only do we need to be available as a resource for teachers to help to help them think about how these different strategies can be implemented for individual kids who stutter. We also need to make sure that when we are working with a child who stutters, that we are explicitly discussing how they can be successful in the classroom and this idea of self-advocacy and self-disclosure and educating peers and all of those things that they can do in partnership with the teacher in the classroom to help themselves have a have a better experience in the classroom too. So it's not to say all of that rests on the shoulders of a nine-year-old child who stutters, but there are absolutely things that as, as speech-language pathologists we can do in therapy to help empower that nine-year-old child who stutters to interact in a way in which they feel most comfortable. So not that they have to use their strategies all the time, but that they can openly stutter if that's what they choose to do. And if they are experiencing bullying and teasing, that they have a phrase that they know that they can say. They can say, yes, I stutter. What's the big deal? And walk away. And they don't have to, in that moment, come up with that phrase. So we can work on those things to empower, again, things like self-disclosure that, although not for everyone, for some people can be really successful in reducing that that fear or anxiety that comes up with sort of like that first stutter when like you're going to kind of be outed as a person who stutters, so to speak, right? So what can we do in therapy to help the child feel empowered feel confident and self-advocate because as a person who stutters, those are going to be skills that are going to help throughout life and social environments and in the workforce, that kind of thing. And so that's a that's a really important thing to do too. So I think as speech language pathologists, our role here is is dual in that we really need to make sure teachers know what's going on, know what stuttering is, know appropriate and inappropriate ways to respond, know some potential strategies that they could use. 
And then on the flip side of that, work with the child to say, hey, what are you going to tell your teacher? How are you going to introduce yourself to your teacher? Are you going to disclose to the teacher and talk about strategies that may be helpful ahead of time? Or are you going to wait for it to come up? Are you going to talk to your teacher if you see that there's presentations required? Are you going to initiate that conversation? Right now, do you need me to initiate that conversation? Like, what is that? What does that need to look like? And, and just making sure that every member of that team is involved and educated and, and kind of ready to to do their part to have the most successful classroom experience that they can. And I, I know this goes without saying, but if we're going to simplify something, make sure that stuttering is okay in the classroom. There's a lot of things that might be helpful or definitely helpful and are very much individual that we've talked about that are within the article. And I love allowing the child to lead as the expert of their stuttering, where they're at, what they need, making a plan to meet them where they are and promoting this growth and confidence and success in the communication so that they're doing everything that other students are doing, irregardless of how much stuttering exists and making steps to get there. I love that. And the message that stuttering is okay in the classroom that's sent to peers is so critical in mitigating against any sort of misunderstandings that peers might get from society as a whole or from whatever is being potentially reinforced you know, by the teacher or, or by the speech pathologist. And a thought that is coming across in my mind hearing about what some of the results were and especially those things that were kind of conflicting in whether it was helpful or unhelpful, it leads me to feel like maybe addressing and speaking to the fact that the, the speech pathologist might actually not be completely in the know regarding stuttering. And we know that, that we know that stuttering can be a, a least competent area within our field. It, it's it's an area that a lot of speech language pathologists could could grow in. And so I think that teachers, if you're listening, to use your your intuition to talk with your students that you have and maybe together offering school-wide education on stuttering and, and using days like International Stuttering Awareness Day or National Stuttering Awareness Week as a way to promote facts and dispel myths. And, you know, I, I have some kids that bring in treats to school on one of those days to kind of flip the narrative on it being this taboo walking on eggshells thing or something that somebody is, quote, working on. It's a part of these children's voice and they want to to talk and be a part of school every day without this <gasps> is it a bad day because i'm really stuttery no it's just a stuttery day and i still have a lot of things to say and i don't need to do anything necessarily on these days if i don't want to in fact sometimes that is really what fuels so so much much difficulty but i mean i don't want to get us on a tangent but i you know i don't want us to feel like we have to lean on the speech language pathologist as the expert in the school always because sometimes that just is unfortunately not the case but i hope that changes more and more over time and i do feel positive about that trajectory there for sure I mean, I think that's a really good point. What we know is that although as a field we're getting better, a lot of school-based treatment for stuttering is still very much speech strategy based and does not always incorporate the the broader kind of thoughts and beliefs and attitudes that a child has about their own communication. And so, we, yes, we need to make sure that that is then not the message that's being translated out to teachers as well. I think that this is where in our field 
there's a need for and a push for this sort of like community of speech language pathologists who are listening to the voices of people who stutter, who are kind of reading the literature as it comes out and evolves and changes and that kind of thing. That's what led us to to start the special interest group in, in Oklahoma as well, just to have sort of like a resource where we can come together and just kind of discuss these issues and stay up to date. And, you know, it's hard in our field. Our field is a generalist field and school-based speech pathologists are generalists. They, you know, have to serve any kid who comes through the door who, ha- you know, who has who has that need. And so they have to be ready to work with a child who stutters or a child with a traumatic brain injury or a voice disorder or a feeding disorder or literacy issues or language issues, you know. And so there's a lot there. And so I think that sort of willingness to continue to grow and to to reach out to other professionals and, and learn from each other is is really important. And, and it's the same for teachers as well. Like, my goodness, the pressures on teachers these days are just outrageous. And with the number of students they have and the number of, of complex needs that the students have, like there is a, a lot on the plates of these teachers. So making sure that we're able to provide information that is easily accessible and easily applied within the classroom and and that kind of thing is really important. So just that, you know, just having those open conversations, teacher to teacher, teacher to speech language pathologist, teacher to student, just to make sure that we're we're in conversation about these about these topics is really important. And I think like the school age years is such a precious time to support children who stutter. You know, if you get speech therapists involved, teacher, parents and caregivers, even peers to really try to help them be confident and develop that communicative competence. Um, I think it's like a really valuable age, you know, right before adolescence when, you know, you're, there's a lot of like transitions and yeah, I just think it's important to realize that like, we're all trying to, to gain more knowledge and support these kids in the best way we can. And it just starts from, you know, conversations like these and conversations with the child. Perhaps to wrap up, we can talk about uh, as a school year starts recommendations for teachers. So if a teacher is listening and they're, you know, getting their classroom going for the year, what are some things that they should absolutely consider? Yeah, I think like we discussed, it's important to first consider or realize that it's okay to stutter and that, you know, we want this child to say what they want to say when they want to say it. So when thinking about when a teacher's thinking about their role in speech therapy, you know, you don't have to put so much pressure on yourself as like, oh, should I be doing something in class where I can like decrease their stuttering? Because really the main point of supports is to get them to be confident and participate fully in class. I think another thing that I would add to that is to initiate a conversation. If the child does not initiate a private conversation in which you ask the child if there's anything that they would like you to know about how best to support them in class. And it doesn't even have to be a stuttering specific question, but just a private conversation. Is there anything you'd like me to know about how I can help you have the best experience you can in class this year? And maybe that will lead to comments about stuttering and answering questions in class and that kind of thing. And and maybe it won't. But either way, building that connection so that the child who stutters sees you as a safe and interested person, I think is a really, really important way to start the year. Yeah. Um, I think you can think about some of those more universal do's and don'ts. So do be patient, try not to interrupt, and then having the the conversation with the speech therapist maybe at the beginning of the school year as well. 
Another thing, and we work with kids who stutter on this in therapy to kind of like have a set thing that you're comfortable saying when a situation comes up. So if someone teases you, like, do you have a line you're comfortable saying? I think practicing as a teacher, practicing a couple of lines where if you witness an interruption or bullying or teasing or just unnecessary comments, if you you can practice a couple of different ways to respond to that and just see what feels comfortable and good to you. So you don't have that sort of like in the moment stress of like, how am I how am I going to handle this? So just being a little bit proactive about how you may handle any of those conflicts and just just literally practice in front of the mirror um, what you might say if that situation comes up so that you're you're ready for that in case it does. And, and maybe it will and maybe it won't, but then you may feel less kind of stressed about the, the what ifs of that scenario. Do pay attention those first couple of weeks of school, see how the student's getting along because you can provide really valuable insights to the speech therapist and to the parents and just help them know in which ways we can support them. Yeah, just making sure that the teacher is sending the message that they're there for the student to talk to at any point. And I know you all have mentioned that, but it just feels like such an important role that they they have and 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 to be just a support system there too for them. I think my last comment about and under this kind of recommendations for teachers to wrap up is that it's okay and normal if you don't know much about stuttering yet. There are a lot of really good organizations that are very centered on people who stutter. So Stuttering Foundation of America, Friends, we, we've mentioned several already today. And so just getting online and looking at those websites, looking at to learn about kind of the experiences of people who stutter. And if you haven't really been around people who stutter much. Just listening, a lot of those websites will have like videos of people who stutter talking about their experience. Just listen to people who stutter so that you're a little bit more comfortable with that interaction. Because what we know is that sometimes when people haven't heard people who stutter when they're stuttering, they can have an, like an unintentionally awkward response. And so one of the things you can do is just expose yourself to it a little bit so that you are not as uncomfortable if a child in your class is is stuttering. So that's an easy way to just learn a little bit more about stuttering and then just get comfortable and know that it's okay. If that's a step you need to take to get more comfortable with it, that's totally fine. And there are lots of videos online of people discussing their stuttering and stuttering while they're doing it. And you can you can watch those and, and just learn a little bit more about what stuttering can sound like for different people so that you um, are a little bit more comfortable if it happens in your classroom. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's easy to feel kind of helpless. Like if I were a teacher, it's like, what should I do? What should I not do? But just starting from a place of listening and understanding and telling the child that you're there, that's going to go a long way. I think that's a really perfect w- way way, way to close. So thank you for, for that lovely closing, Gabby, and for all that you've shared with us, Laura, as well. And listeners for, for, for being with us. Thank you all. I will link to the article in the description. I'll also link to some resources from some organizations that we've mentioned that might feel beneficial and also list my contact information and also Dr. Ellen Kelly's contact information who answers Ask the Stuttering Foundation at stutteringhelp.org email address. She would love to speak with any teachers individually further. Thank you so much for having us on to discuss the article and, and this this topic with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you both. And hoping the beginning of the school year goes well for all of those listening. We'll see you all next month.